Welcome to Chapter 7 of The Jesus Adventure, a study in the spirituality training system of Jesus of Nazareth. In this chapter, the first part of the third quarter, we will be investigating the blessing of the restoration and refreshing on the adventure. As always, we start by honoring and inviting God to teach us with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that learning to follow Jesus gives us rest for our souls and that you refresh us for victory as your children. As we're learning to trust you more and more, thank you for leading us into the peace beyond understanding. Help us to fully receive all that you have for us in this discovery. As we begin chapter 7 of the Jesus Adventure, the restoration and refreshing on the journey, we remember that Jesus leads us to step out in trusting the Father's plan, to cross over from fear to faith, from self-reliance to God-reliance, and we will discover that his next leading is to experience the power of his rest. It tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, that Jesus called his apprentices to come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a little while. Now, it's no accident or random fact that this is the seventh phase of his training program. In fact, it's entirely by design. This is God's way of teaching us that his goal for us is to be restored and refreshed by his perfect power and plan. Now, in this situation in Mark chapter 6, Jesus and the team had been very busy doing the work of traveling about and announcing the kingdom of God, healing, restoring people, casting out evil spirits, teaching, meeting people's needs for many days. And they had many more busy times ahead. And right in the middle of it, Jesus calls them away from the crowds to rest. There's much more to this little invitation than is noticed at first glance. So what we're discovering here is finding strength from heaven. You see, Jesus is teaching us that it's all about getting that strength from heaven, not from ourselves. It's truly essential that we understand that Jesus wants us to be steadfast in this calling, walking this journey with him, ready and able to last for the long haul. This is not a sprint. It's an endurance race that requires perseverance, even though we are much closer to his return now than when this all began, we cannot defeat the forces of darkness in a frenzy. We will defeat them on God's terms by his power. That means we need heaven's strength. His power is derived from his rest. As you go forward, we want to remind ourselves that Jesus said, learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and will give you rest for your souls. Or he said, you will find rest for your souls. That's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. We're here to now to discover the power of resting in full assurance of the ultimate restoration. See, no part of the apprentice training for Jesus' adventure is more vital to sustaining the power of God than learning the powerful truth of being refreshed and strengthened from heaven as we find in this section the rest. It is the design of the Father. It's the passion of Jesus to give us rest for our souls. To fully understand this, we need to consider how God has given the principle of rest for his people from the very beginning of time. Through most of this book, I've avoided historical study, focusing rather on seeing our walk with Jesus in a paradigm for the 21st century. And this is one place, however, we need to look back. We need to take this step back and really understand the bigger picture to fully capture the value of this principle. 
which means looking to this principle from the beginning and considering what God has done so that we can see what he's doing now and what he's going to do tomorrow. God gave us a powerful tool for our adventure with Jesus that keeps us refreshed, empowered, energized, and restored consistently on this journey. This one principle spans the beginning to the end, and it reaches into the deepest part of the spirituality of Jesus. If we truly receive and hold the sacred principle from start to finish, we will have an unstoppable faith that overcomes all forces trying to defeat us. This is the sacred adventure principle of rest in Jesus. As I said in the beginning, there is a vast mystery in this life that confounds us all until we discover it. We are naturally tempted in every wrong direction on the compass, tempted toward every wrong destination on the map, and we are tempted with every wrong method to get there until we discover the call of God in Jesus. It's in God's anointed prince, our King Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, that we find this total power of rest for our souls. The wise believers of earlier times had a phrase to remind themselves, saying, Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, O Lord. Discovering these sacred adventure principles of Jesus means finding all the ways and means and skills that we otherwise would miss on this journey in life to succeed on the adventure that the Father has planned for us. It means finding the meaning of this vast mystery of life, discovering the God who designed and created us with a purpose, and fulfilling that call with magnificent completion according to His design. It means discovering this beautiful calling He embedded deep into our souls. It means learning the words and the mysteries as if it were a sacred song which He sung over us long before any of us drew our first breath. This principle of rest and resting is one of the deepest and most sacred parts of the adventure, and it has layers of truths with powerful significance. It's what Jesus wants for us all to receive. It is what he prayed for us to receive on the night he was betrayed. If you look at John chapter, six, uh, John chapter 17 for the full prayer that he prayed over us all, I encourage you to memorize it. For the purpose of this chapter, we're going to look at three key things that Jesus prayed for us. In verse 13, it says, he prayed that my followers will have the same complete joy that I do. That's John chapter 17, 13. Folks, understand Jesus wants you to have joy, not just any joy, but a complete joy that's the same joy that Jesus had when he walked this earth. Then it says in verse 20, he prayed, I'm not praying just for these followers, I'm also praying for everyone else who will have faith because of what my followers will say about me. Hey, guess what, folks? That's you and me. Then lastly, Jesus gets to verse 23 where he says, They will know that you love my followers as much as you love me. He wants us to know that God, the Father in heaven, loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Wow. That, that's such an enormous concept, I can't even begin to fathom it. What these excerpts of the prayer of Jesus are telling us is that Jesus wants us, he deeply desires for us to be filled with his full measure of everlasting joy, that he's specifically including us today in that prayer, and that the Father has committed himself to love us as much as he loves Jesus himself. That is such a radical concept. 
I mean, to, to begin to think of it is just beyond my, my understanding, beyond my comprehension. And yet that's what Jesus is praying for us. And that's the Father's heart for us. This is the truth that is often misunderstood by most religious people. We tend to get caught up in this idea of works and trying to earn and trying to be right with God and all these things, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's this incredible thing that God has planned and is offering us all who trust in Jesus for his completed work. This is the foretaste of glory divine that the faithful people of God in earlier generations used to sing about. So we can be steadfast on this journey with Jesus to discover the powerful source of eternal renewal in the new creation. And I want you to hold on to that thought for a moment, because this is what the New Testament is telling us about over and over again, is this new creation. It's a new creation that's coming in physical reality, but it's a new creation that exists for us today who trust in Christ in a spiritual reality. What comes next will utterly transform us as we grab hold of these amazing sacred adventure principles. The old life of the rebel nature falls away like an old set of rags as we come to experience this new rest for the soul that we find on the Jesus adventure. Now what we see here is that his rest was planned from the beginning. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 it tells us that there will be a banner, a sign to all people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his rest shall be glorious. So what this is telling us is, folks, that the kingdom of God was always intended to spread out from the Jews, from the people of Israel. It was never just for them. And the fact that it has spread out and come to Gentiles, people trust in Jesus the Messiah all over the world, and we fall under a single banner, a single sign. That's the sign of Christ, right? That sign is telling us that this final statement he makes here is true, that his rest shall be glorious. Now, as an aside, we've covered a lot of quotes from Isaiah, more than the rest of the Old Testament combined here. And that's because Isaiah was given the specific role of introducing Messiah and the plan of salvation more specifically than the rest of the prophets combined. What's interesting is that Isaiah is considered the pinnacle of the Hebrew Bible literature. It's called in the Old Testament the finest book, the most elegant form of ancient Hebrew writing. And he was more clearly dictated by God's own voice than anyone else since Moses himself. Now, while all the other prophets give allusions and insights to the Messiah, Isaiah's book foretells the ministry and the glory of the Messiah with the most clarity. And again, For us here today, Messiah and Christ are synonyms. We're just using one in a Hebrew context, one in a Gentile context, but we're talking about one and the same person. They're not different. So at this point, we want to look at how this happens, that things have come to the point where people confound the purpose of the rest for our souls. We find that this portion of the faith of Jesus may be the most misunderstood and argued aspect of the sacred journey especially by the very religious. And this is because our adversary, the devil, knows that he must starve us of the spiritual nourishment that gives strength to complete the adventure. So the religious types skip over the more profound parts. This is unfortunate, but it's what happens. What Isaiah shows us here is that this was the plan from long before Jesus came. Isaiah the prophet is foretelling to the Jewish people that the Messiah 
Jesus is coming with a sign or a banner that leads Gentiles to seek him. Now that sign, of course, is the cross. And it's telling us that this sign will lead people to his glorious rest for their soul, in which it says, and his rest shall be glorious. Again, Isaiah 11, verse 10. So this was God's plan from the very beginning. This sign of the cross is a banner to all people all over the world. To envision this, you have to picture how ancient armies and processions of kings or princes would travel. They would have a banner that was a sign, an ensign, so to speak, of their authority, which represented their distinct rule. This is where the ideas of a coat of arms comes in, you know, where a specific legion or unit of an army would show their colors. It's also where we get the idea of flags for nations. This sign or banner that G- that Isaiah is talking about is the Messiah's unique sign, showing his authority. Friends, that is the cross. That is Jesus's cross. In fact, in the original Hebrew language, the word here can also mean sail, like on a ship or a fishing boat in Jesus' times. And always those ensigns and those sails were held up by a mast, a single straight pole, right? And what? A cross beam. You see, folks, the cross is his logo. It's his own brand, in a sense. Always has been. And since his emissaries first began teaching, this has been true. It's what Jesus spoke of repeatedly before he was crucified. Look at Peter's first sermon. He talks about times of refreshing coming from Jesus suffering on the cross and his resurrection. That's tied together right there at the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. Unfortunately, the devil often tricks those who are the most earnest to follow God into a mindset that actually hurts people. And so in many ways, we see how the cross has been used as a negative thing by the religious and a thing of mockery against Christ by the people who reject him. Folks, that's a design of the evil one, to warp our understanding. We have to unlearn that evil thought in order to take hold of the great treasure that God has planned for us. Our goal here as Jesus' adventuring apprentices is to use the sacred key, this knowledge of Christ's planned rest, which was prophesied so long ago, revealing more than six centuries before Jesus was even born, that it's to create a success for God's people. We want to tell everyone about it, this rest of Jesus, the rest for our souls, the restoration and refreshing that comes from total trust in his work on the cross. That might not stand out to you right away from this verse in Isaiah 11, but that's what it's telling us. The rest for our souls is coming from this banner, this sign that was given for the Gentiles to seek. Am am I capturing that for you? The sign of the cross is teaching us his rest. So what we're going to find is that God has given us cycles of rest for the body, but those cycles are not the goal. They are only the shadow of the goal. Let me say that again. God has given us cycles of rest for the body, but those cycles of rest, those physical rests, are not the goal. Since they're a shadow of the true goal, which is this daily confident rest in the finished work of our Lord on the cross, they instruct us, they give us an understanding. The goal is learning that our Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the rest from all efforts to cure ourselves. This rest is so perfect, so complete, because it relies entirely on the life-giving spirit and the perfect sinless work of Christ on the cross. It requires that we stop striving in the natural mind and by natural resources. 
and we learn to rest in the power of his spirit and his complete fulfillment of the law of the Old Testament, which the Jews will tell you is called the Torah. His completion, his fulfillment of that is how we rest. So the rest of Jesus is more than just a tool for the people of God. It's not just about recharging our physical strength and vitality. It extends far beyond those needs. This sacred adventure principle of Jesus gives us healing into the depths of our souls and empowers our spirits for battle against a relentless adversary, the enemy of our souls, whom we call the devil or the accuser or the evil one. When we have the rest of Jesus implanted into our souls, we have a source of strength that no amount of lies and deception can defeat. We have this perfect work, not only overcoming our past rebellion, but creating the transforming nature of Jesus himself in us. We come to realize that the work of our redemption is complete. You see, our failures and weaknesses cannot undo what Christ has done. So in resting in his glorious power, the Spirit of Messiah is able to work in us to do what we cannot do ourselves, create something entirely new. We begin to experience this new creation of the new people of God, which the Bible calls one new man and one new creation in Christ. This is the sign that the prophet Isaiah was speaking of, the perfection of the cross of Christ the perfection of the sacrifice of Messiah for our total redemption. The complete and total surrender of the Messiah to the will of the Father has paid the debt for the rebellion of man in full. Now we can breathe a sigh of relief and say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. We can completely let go of all fear, all anxiety, all turmoil, and all efforts to either please God, appease God, or hide from God. He has said that he is satisfied and wants us to be confident enough to rest completely in him. Because God's plan for us is to be refreshed and undefeatable as his apprentices. You see, God gave his people a weekly rest from the beginning. It was understood by most biblical scholars that this principle of rest was taught to humans from the very beginning of creation. But we quickly forgot Genesis says that God created for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. It also says that he also made that day sacred, and he blessed it, a special blessing in honor of the natural world creation which we were given, this world we live in. However, there's no record of mankind actually keeping that day of rest until the Exodus, when God worked through Moses to give the ancient Israelites the law of Moses, again called the Torah, when they were at Mount Sinai after they had left Egypt. Now think about that. Thousands of years of toil and struggle without rest. In fact, there's no record of a regular cycle of rest in human history apart from the command that Moses gave. No culture has one until then. Now it's hard to imagine generations that never knew a regular weekly time of rest. So God gave rest to his people in the form of law through Moses at Mount Sinai. He commanded it. He said, you must take a day of rest and recharge. That's what he told the people then. And yet, the nature of man is so rebellious that the people reject it, one generation after another. Can you imagine that? They refused to take time to rest. That's what hardcore rebels we humans are. We'll oppose God even if it's to give us rest. 
Now, science shows us that rest is one of the most important tools to keep us healthy and strong. It seems to have been one of the great things that made Israel strong against her enemies in the early days. It seems absurd, but we know that humans who rest one day a week are more productive and healthier than those who work every day. This blessing of rest is also something that makes life very beautiful. We can see this in music, for example. A song without consistent cycles of rest is just run on noise. But consistent cycles of rest within the song give that song poignant beauty that accelerates the melody and accentuates the value and and the, the composition, and it makes a vital part of the rhythm. In the same way in life, we see, we hear, we feel the beauty of life more when you have time to stop and consider the Creator and the Redeemer who loves us and gave us this amazing world that we live in. So we don't want to miss that point, although it's just a shadow of the larger truth, as I've said. We need to keep that in mind. This is a very valuable, very beautiful point, but it remains simply a shadow of a larger, greater, more beautiful point. So at this point, we want to talk about the mysteries and shadows of things to come. And in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, it tells us, I will tell you great and hidden things that you've not known. Now, we want to be careful because there is false teaching that tries to create and imagine mysteries and things that uh, is designed to really confound people so that only scholars can learn this stuff. But listen, the mysteries and shadows of things to come that God is talking about, he is revealing to his people. It's clear. It's plain in his word. It's not mysterious to us. It's mysterious to the people that don't know him. So there's something much more profound and more beautiful to the rest of Jesus than just taking a day off. It's a sacred principle that has profound layers of mystery wrapped into it. And those mysteries are given to us who follow this adventure. So realize that the Bible says, quote, in Proverbs 25, verse 2, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. And also it says in Jeremiah 33 again, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you've not known. See, he wants us to call to him. That's the point of all of this, is he wants us to recognize that it's through this relationship, through having a a firm, interactive relationship with God, that we begin to discover these things. And so long before the New Testament, God was showing us that there are things that are revealed which are not immediately seen or understood. They come from that relationship with God, and that relationship with God comes through Jesus. In fact, in the days long before Jesus, the rabbis had a saying that said, we will only understand the law and the prophets completely when Messiah comes. Something to that effect. I probably don't have the quote correct. But the point was they knew that only Messiah could bring full understanding. We see this thinking stated by the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, in this way, we know that there are types and shadows of greater realities that are in the Old Testament. The Sabbaths are just such a shadow, which help us to see deeper things of the Spirit that are not immediately understood by our mortal minds. So we'll get more to that in just a moment. In order to get to the greater reality, first we have to consider and and think about the shadow, the original points that were given to us. So what about those Sabbaths? Well, the seventh day and the seventh year were Sabbaths. It's hard to say with the T-H and the S there, but they were Sabbaths that were given to the people of Israel by God through Moses. And at first glance, it just seems like we're talking about the natural world. 
but they are a shadow of the greater reality of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, being our source of rest and refreshing for our soul. And I'll, mo- I'll make that point more clear in a moment. But this is about our immaterial being as much as about our physical material being. Those rests reveal to us how his rest is perfect or glorious, as it says in Isaiah. Every seventh day and every seventh year was a time of rest. You were actually forced to not work. Rest from our labors, rest of the land and of the economy, which resulted in a 49-year cycle with an extra year, a 50th year reset that they call the Jubilee. So the seventh of the seventh Sabbath year was followed by this year of Jubilee on the 50th year. And it was then that all debts were canceled, all slaves were freed, all land returned to its ancestral family, and so on which also hints at this being about something bigger. Think about that. Debts canceled, slaves freed, returning to ancestral lands. That tells us a little bit more about what humanity has been going through for the last 6,000 years. Because, folks, we have a debt that needs to be paid. We are all slaves of sin that need to be freed. And we have a spiritual home that is an ancestral land that we lost. So this is hinting about something bigger. Jesus brings us the new covenant, or what we may call a new binding contract from God. And he represents a new creation, a new kind of rest, a new kind of freedom, a new kind of canceling of debt, and a new restoration of the inheritance of that land that was lost. What was that land that was lost? That land was a bridge to the divine realm of the spirit, the place of total communion with God, which we call Eden. So while Sabbath commemorates the natural world's creation, the rest for our souls, Jesus himself, is the Sabbath rest of a new creation, a a restoring of the lost connection to God at the beginning of our race. It is in this sense that from the beginning, Christians have celebrated the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, as the weekly day of rest and worship. For 2,000 years, Believers in Jesus have kept that as a tradition, not as a law. Let's keep that in mind. It's kept as a tradition, not as a law. Now, why is that? Why is that tradition valuable when we often talk about how Jesus said that we don't follow traditions of man? And it's just simple that it wasn't a tradition of man. It was a tradition given to us by God to follow Jesus and be connected with him. So, We do this in a gathering to commemorate his resurrection on the first day of the week. This tradition began on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was given to the believers. You can find this event in the book of Acts in chapter 2, which was also on the first day of the week, exactly seven weeks after Jesus rose from the dead. And remember, seven is always about rest. It's always about perfection. So exactly seven weeks after Jesus rose from the dead, is the event of the Pentecost, the what the Jewish people call Shavuot. And we're under this new covenant, not the old covenant law now because of that, because God has shown us that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he was accepting his death on the cross as full payment of erasing all debt for all those who trust in him. So we're no longer under the old covenant law because that debt has been paid. And in this way, we are able to have freedom to gather or rest at any time. But 
very nearly 2,000 years now since Pentecost, it's been on the first day of the week that Christians gather to celebrate this restoration in Jesus. Our Sabbath is Christ, Messiah, Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. That is the one in the prime position of all creation and also the firstborn over creation. So this is what scripture teaches us over and over again. And this is the first to be resurrected to eternal life is the key here. In this, we have a confident hope because he promised to raise us to the same eternal new creation life. This new resurrection of all believers has been promised to us who trust in him. This promise is the great hope, the great promise to all who love him to hold on to. In this, we no longer fear death. We no longer fear its bite. We no longer fear its sting. We no longer fear what comes after because we hold confidently to Jesus who has already conquered death and hell for us. Now, at this point, we always get the question about the covenant of Moses. And what we have to hear from God is that for those who are in Christ, the old curses and blessings plan is obsolete. You see, the old covenant, that is the covenant of Moses, was a covenant law of curses and blessings. It was temporary and imperfect. Scripture teaches us that through the prophets. Moses himself admitted that the old covenant would expire when Messiah came. We want to keep in mind that Jesus is promising something that was not promised under the old covenant, and that is rest for your souls. It's not in the Torah, and it's only hinted at in the Psalms as a prophetic view looking forward to the time of Messiah's promised restoration. Now, to understand this, we have to see how in the old covenant, Moses taught and really the law commanded that the Sabbath was a time for the body to rest from work. It was a total, complete rest. No work was allowed of any kind. Yet, some of the special Sabbath feasts were actually a time to afflict their souls under that same law. And Jesus came promising something different, a new covenant. And we want to keep that in mind. They are not the same. Some people try to merge them into one and make them the same, but they are not the same. He is not saying that we have to keep those old covenant requirements of ceremonies, feasts, and sacrifices, etc. 